Welcome to Bible Answers Live, where you'll get honest answers to your Bible questions. Let's face it, it's not always easy to understand everything you read in the Bible. With 66 books and more than 700,000 words, the Bible can generate a lot of questions. If you'd like answers to your Bible questions, you've come to the right place. Now, here's your host, Pastor Jean Ross, Vice President of Evangelism for Amazing Facts. Good evening, friends. How about an amazing fact? Consider for a moment the ear of the bat. It is well known that bats fly by sonar. They emit high-frequency sounds which the human ear cannot hear. The returning echo of these sounds place sound print pictures in their minds. Using this technique, a bat can catch a tiny, fast-flying insect. The higher the pitch, the smaller the surface its echo can reveal. Some sounds are so high that the little bat can detect the presence of a wire no thicker than the human hair stretched across its flight path. Then there is the intensity of the sound. The louder it is, the more distant the object that can't be detected. So these calls are generally very loud. But wait, if it is necessary for a bat to make such a loud sound in order to have it echo back from a distant object, how can the bat possibly hear the echo with its ears in the midst of all of the racket it is making with its mouth? Well, this is a good question, for the ear of the bat is extremely sensitive. Just a few of these loud screams would quickly deafen it. But God has taken care of the problem. There is a special muscle in the middle ear of the bat that is attached to one of three tiny bones which transmit vibrations from the eardrum to the organ in the skull that convert them to nerve signals that are sent to the brain. Just as each scream is on the verge of being omitted, this muscle instantly pulls back on one of these tiny bones so that it does not transmit sound from the outer ear to the inner ear. The eardrum is momentarily disconnected. Then after the scream ends, that muscle relaxes and the bone moves back into place. Thus the only sound that the bat actually hears is its own echo. This back and forth motion of this little bone occurs more than 100 times a second and it always occurs in perfect alignment with the sending of the super short screams. Now friends, if God cares enough about the common bat to provide it with this remarkable ability to hear its own echo, how much more does he care for you? Stay tuned for more as Amazing Facts brings you this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, honest answers to your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's join our host, Pastor Jean Ross. Hello, friends. Welcome back. This is Bible Answers Live. This is an international live Bible study, and I'd like to welcome our friends who are listening by radio across the country and also, we have a number of folks who listen on the internet, not only in North America, but even as far away as 
New Zealand and South Africa, all around the world. We also have those who are joining us on Facebook live this evening, and we'd like to greet all of you. Welcome to our program. As you can see, it's just me today here as part of Bible Answers Live. Pastor Doug is away this weekend. He's actually out of town, but we're here ready to take your Bible questions. So if you have a Bible-related question, the phone line here to the studio is 1-800-463-7297. I'll give you that number again as we go through the program, but uh, make sure you write it down. The number is 800-463-7297. That'll bring you right here to the studio with your Bible question. I'll be giving you another number, which is our free offer number for our uh, different resources. And uh, I'll give you that number in just a moment. But let me talk about our amazing fact. We talked about this remarkable little muscle in the inner ear of the bat that can actually... Um, separate the eardrum of the bat from the inner ear so that it can just hear its echo. It's really a remarkable thing. And all of this happens in just a few moments every second, more than a hundred times. And of course, God is the one who designed this and built this ability for the bat. And there's a lesson in that for us. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, it's actually Jesus speaking. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. You think about the remarkable design that's involved in the creatures that God has made. You've got the birds, you've got the bats, you've got the flowers, the trees, everything. So delicately designed. How much more does God care about you? We have a book that talks about assurance. God's love for us, and also the plan of redemption. It is a book written by Pastor Doug, and this is our free offer this evening. We'd be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. All you have to do is call 800-835-6747 and ask for the book called Assurance, Justification Made Simple. That number again is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book, Assurance, written by Pastor Doug. We'll be happy to send this out to anyone who calls and asks. And if you have a Bible question, our phone line here to the studio again is 800-463-7297. That you bring in here and we'll be able to talk about your Bible question. Again, that number is 800-463-7297. And with that, I think we're ready to go to the phone lines. Our first caller that we have is, let's see, we have Mark listening from... Looks like Canada. Mark, welcome to the program. Yes, hello. Hi, Mark. You're on the air. Hi. Um, My question um, is, I see Pastor Doug's not there. Yes, Pastor Doug's out of town. um, (laughs) um, My question was, um, because lately in uh, several of his um, broadcasts, he's made reference to unfallen worlds. And um, I was just wondering where in the Bible we might find some information on that. Yeah, that's a good question. We do have several references, actually, that talk about these beings, um, not from our world, but from other worlds. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about a gathering together. And this is Job chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So it's describing a meeting that occurs somewhere in the universe, probably in heaven. And it talks about this group of people. It calls them the sons of God the representatives of these other worlds. And then Satan shows up and he's claiming to represent the earth. 
And God asks the question, have you considered my servant Job? And of course, Satan says, well, the only reason he serves you is because of all of the blessings you have bestowed upon him. And then you have the whole story of Job play out. So some have seen in the sons of God that's spoken of here in Job as being the representatives of these unfallen worlds. You can also read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, where it's speaking about creation and Christ. It says that through him, he created the worlds and it uses the plural word there for worlds. So our world is not the only world that God created. It appears as though there are other worlds and uh, there are other created beings other than angels. Angels typically abide in heaven, but there are other worlds. Uh, We think our world is the only one that has fallen prey to Satan's deceptions. Uh, These other worlds probably have uh, resisted Satan's temptations. They are faithful to God. They're also seen as the 24 elders that are described in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 talks about these 24 elders and some seeing that the representatives of the unfallen worlds. And in Psalms, we read about how that the Lord reigns before his elders gloriously. So when you put these different verses together, it comes to light that there are these unfallen worlds and they are the representatives of the unfallen worlds there in heaven witnessing the great controversy being played out here on the earth. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we do have a book. Actually, Pastor Doug wrote a book. Yeah. And it's called The Sons of God. Who are the sons of God? And it talks about this here in uh, the verse, particularly in in Job, as well as some of the other references. And uh, Mark, we'd be happy to send that to you. All you have to do is call us on our resource phone line. That number is 800-835-6747. And as for the book called Who Are the Sons of God? Again, that number is 800-835-6747. And if you have a Bible question, we do have a few lines still open. The number to call is 800-463-7297. That's 800-463-7297. Our next question or next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we have Robert listening in Tennessee. Robert, welcome to the program. Hi, Robert. And your question tonight. I have a question. Uh, in Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, uh, it mentions uh, the, the, the gentleman who is uh, speaking of his potential bride. He's mentioning uh, her breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Okay, He is mentioning a part of the female body that is actually for uh, child feeding. Um would that be to say that because he is using, um, thinking of her in a different way than the, you know, her breasts were meant to be for feeding children, he's thinking of him in a sexual way, is that actually considered, um, I don't know, perversion? Okay. Song of Solomon is a very interesting book, and um, it clearly, there's several themes that you can see in there. There's definitely uh, the love of a husband and a wife. That That's pretty evident there. And intimacy that God originally designed for a husband and wife. Um, but it also has spiritual meaning or spiritual applications. In the Bible, the church is described as the bride of Christ and the groom is described as Jesus. Um, so you can also find that the purpose of the church is to... First of all, to be committed to Christ, to be fully surrendered to Christ. And then the church is to reflect his character to the world and to grow, to do evangelism and to produce, so to speak, other believers in Christ. And so you've got somewhat of that parallel. 
Uh, Song of Solomon is a very descriptive passage. It is written in poetic form. And so there's some poetic language that's used in the description that you find here. And yeah, it it is a a book that deals with romance and the marriage relationship. And uh, it's one of those those interesting books that, uh, yeah, sometimes you got to... depending on your audience, where you want to read from that book, because it is pretty descriptive in some ways. To be honest with you, you know, we just need to be careful. We do have a live program here, and we have all kinds of audience listening, so you've got to be careful on where we go with that. I would encourage folks, if you'd like, read it for yourself. Take a look at the book of Song of Solomon, and there's a lot of interesting uh, comments there that I think need to be looked at in its proper context. And of course, that's true for any subject that you're studying in the Bible. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Our next caller that we have is Samuel listening from Wisconsin. Samuel, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Hi, thanks for calling. And your question this evening. Yes, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse three, uh, 2 and 3, where God rested on the uh, Sabbath yes. after creation, that before I was a, a, a Sunday keeper, but I, after listening to your programming and seeing that uh, the importance that uh, God had rested, blessed, and sanctified it, is that the only day the Lord rested in the Bible? It is, uh, especially in the sense of creation. So God created the earth in six days. Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. And then God rested on the seventh day. And if you look at the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days the Lord God made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in it. And then he rested on the seventh day and he sanctified it. To sanctify something means to set it apart for a holy use. So God set aside the seventh day. He rested on that day. Now, God did not rest because it was exhausted in creating the earth. God just spoke things into being. But the rest spoken of here in Genesis chapter 2 is a rest of satisfaction. It is completion. His work was perfect. The Bible says it was very good. And God rested from the work of creating and as as a memorial of his creative work, the Sabbath was established way back, even before sin entered the world. And, of course, that's reflected in the Ten Commandments. You have the Fourth Commandment that talks about that. You go to the New Testament. Again, the Sabbath is spoken of. Jesus kept the Sabbath. You find the Sabbath mentioned many times in the book of Acts. And so we find the Sabbath theme from creation all the way through the Bible. And then if you look at some of the prophetic passages that talk about the earth made new, it again brings up the Sabbath, that God's people will keep the Sabbath in the earth recreated. And is that the only time God rested in the Bible? Well, yes, at least from the work of creation, where God rested. Right, and that uh, was curious, but uh, that answers my question, and uh, uh, shalom to you, brother. All right, absolutely. Thanks for your call, Samuel. Appreciate it. Our next caller that we have is, uh, let's see, we've got um, Bill listening in Chicago. Bill, welcome to the program. Bill, you're on the air. Bill in Chicago, going once, going twice. All right, we might have to come back to you, Bill. Let's see, we've got um, Alvin, I believe it is, listening in um, Brooklyn, Bronx, Bronx, New York. York. There it is, yes. Hi, and welcome to the program. Yes, 
How are we doing, Pastor? I'm Boss. doing very well, thank you. I'm Pastor Bachelor not here today. Pastor Doug is out of town. He might be listening anyway. for all we know, but uh, he's not here in the studio. Okay. Um, the millennium. Yes. There are some, are those who believe that this thousand years period of, in connection with the description of Christ's second return, to reign with his saints as recorded in Revelation 20, verse 1 to 9, are defined in different sectors. To me, it's, it's making the subject a little difficult to understand for some. There are teachings of a millennial, post-millennial, and pre-millennial. Yes. Where do you stand on this? All right, well, let and me... What relation, and what relation of it with the tribulation? Okay, good question. Let me, let me give a little background for our listeners who might not be that familiar with the subject of the millennium. The word millennium doesn't appear in the Bible, but it's Latin. It means a thousand years. And the Bible does speak of a special thousand-year period. And the key passage for this is Revelation chapter 20. Um, sometimes the question is asked, well... Uh, what's happening on the earth during the thousand years or where are the righteous during the thousand years uh, does the tribulation precede the millennium how does that all fit together well if you look at the sequence as given in the book of Revelation and some other passages in the New, T New Testament the time of trouble or the tribulation precedes the second coming of Christ and here's a few verses Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 it says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of thy people. And there will be a time of trouble, worse than the world has ever seen. But at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone found written in the book. So here in Daniel 12, it talks about a time worse than the world has ever seen. And that God's people are delivered, meaning they are delivered through that time of trouble. They are protected during those plagues that fall upon the earth call it the seven last plagues that you can read about in Revelation chapter 15, 16. And then Jesus comes. You have the second coming of Christ. Jesus comes and the righteous are taken to heaven. You have the resurrection of the righteous saints who have died. They are resurrected at the second coming. Those who are living are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. They are caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds in the air. And they spend a thousand years in heaven with Christ and they participating in the judging of the wicked during that time period. The condition on the earth after Jesus comes, it talks about the earth being broken down. It talks about the earth as sort of a dark, desolate region. Actually, Revelation chapter 3 talks about the bottomless pit as sort of a description of that. The wicked are destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming. That's Second Thessalonians. So for a thousand years, the righteous are in heaven. The earth is desolate. Satan and his angels are bound on the earth during that thousand years. At the end of the 1,000-year period, you're reading Revelation chapter 21, that the new Jerusalem descends from God out of heaven. All the wicked are resurrected, and they stand outside the new Jerusalem for what we call the great white throne judgment that you can also read about in Revelation chapter 20. Following the great white throne judgment... Finally, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. It's not a repentance, either it's more of an acknowledgement of the facts, because no sooner do they say that when the devil goes out and is able to deceive them and they mount their attack upon the new Jerusalem, then it is that fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. 
then God creates a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So that's just a quick synopsis of the different steps that take place during that time period. So I hope that helps. Does that make sense? Yeah, but my, my question is, what is the relationship with the, uh, the tribulation and the, the millennium? Well, the tribulation occurs before the millennium begins. The millennium begins with the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes again, that thousand-year time period begins. You'll notice the end of Revelation chapter 19, which leads into the thousand years, is a description of the second coming of Christ, where Jesus is described as coming to execute judgment upon the wicked. Uh, that's the second coming. Then once Jesus comes and the righteous are caught up to meet him in the air, they go to heaven for a thousand years, the wicked all destroyed, that is the millennial period, that 1,000 years. You know, we do have a study guide dealing with the subject of the millennium, and we would be happy to send that out to anyone who calls and asks. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. And I think you'll enjoy this, Alvin, or anyone who wants to learn more about what the Bible has to say on this subject. Just ask for the study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace, and the number to call is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. 800-835-6747 and you can ask for the study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace. Find out what the critics are raving about. Top scholars and theologians from around the country come together to reveal the hidden history of the book of Revelation. With powerful reenactments and incredible visual effects, this 95-minute masterpiece brings to life the book of Revelation like never before. Revelation is no longer a mystery. Get your copy today. Visit iTunes or afbookstore.com. Our next caller that we have is listening in Lodi, California. I believe it's Sean. Sean, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for taking my call. Well, thanks for um, waiting. I'm just trying to gain a better understanding of the role and purpose of the 144,000, especially in end-time prophecy. Okay. The 144,000 are described for us in two principal passages in Revelation. The one is Revelation chapter 7, and the other is Revelation chapter 14. The first six verses talk about the 144,000. Uh, the 144,000, they're God's end-time apostles that take a special warning message to the world. They're alive when Jesus comes the second time. So they are translated to heaven without seeing death. Uh, some of the descriptions given, uh, you can find in Revelation chapter 7, it goes all the way through to, um, talks about them as part of a great multitude. It says there are uh, ones who have gone through great tribulation. I'm looking at verse 15. Uh, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night. Uh, and then it says in verse 16, they neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun does not strike them nor any heat. By the way, that is one of the plagues, is an intense heat. It says, The Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. God will wipe away every tear from the eye. So they're God's people in the last days that have a special work of taking the gospel to the world, especially in the context of the second coming of Christ. So are they insulated from uh, the end time tribulation? Yes, they live through the seven last plagues, but they are protected, just like Elijah of old was protected during the time of the drought that came upon Israel. God provided him water from the brook Cherith, and he had food that was brought to him by the birds, by the ravens. 
Uh, he was protected from the wrath of King Ahab and Jezebel. So God's people in the last days, those who do this work of Elijah, this end-time evangelistic proclamation in the last days, they're protected during that time of universal judgment and destruction that comes upon the earth. So they're people like you and I. They're not angelic. Is that correct? No, they, they believe us. they people like you and I. Um, hmm. You can have more of a description in Revelation chapter 14 where it talks about them singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. Then it says, who were redeemed from the earth? So these are real people. It wow. says, these are the ones who were not defiled. It talks about them being pure. It says, in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So here's a group of people who have come so close to Jesus. They've allowed the Holy Spirit to so infill them that they reflect God's character in the last days in a special way and do a great work of evangelism. So we should all want to be part of that. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we want to be filled yeah. with the Spirit and, and share the good news with as many people as we can. You know, we do have a book that talks about the 144,000. I think you'd find interesting. It's the 144,000. Who are they? And uh, we'll send you the book for free. All you have to do is just call us on our resource phone line, and that number is 800-835-6747. And this is for anyone. Anyone can call and ask. Ask for the book about the 144,000. Again, that number is 800-835-6747. Ask for the book about the 144,000. Next caller that we have is Bill listening from Chicago. Bill, are you there? Yeah, hi. Hi, Hello. welcome to the program. Hi, pastors. Um, I'm calling for some advice because I've gotten two different answers from two different pastors, and so I'm calling to see what you think. All right. Hey, we got about two minutes before we have to take a break. So, what's your question? Okay. Um, my question is basically: Is it okay to go to church if the only way you have to get there is to pay somebody to give you a ride? Is it okay to go to church if you have to pay somebody to get you there? Well, you know, I think if that's the only way that you can get to church is to pay someone to get you there, that's okay. Uh, ideally, what you'd want to do, in the best case scenario, it would be nice if you could... I know some folks go to church and they have to use uh, public transportation like a bus or a train, and they'll try and buy a ticket that is good for a week or two or whatever the case might be so that they don't necessarily have to buy something on the Sabbath. But if that is the only means to get to church is to pay a taxi drive to get you there, I think it's important for you to go to church. Matter of fact, the Bible says we are not to neglect the gathering of ourselves together. So if that's part of what's needed to get to church, I wouldn't feel guilty about that. I know I've had to travel before and I've actually had to pay a toll to get to the church on Sabbath morning, you cross over a bridge, you go through a tunnel, and, you know, what do you do? You've you got to do it. Uh, you need to get to church. I think that's very important. That's actually what the Bible tells us to do, to get to church. But, you know, I've just been torn because, you know, it says in the fourth commandment we're not supposed to work or let our manservant, our maidservant work on the Sabbath. And I feel like, well, if I do this, I'm paying somebody work on Sabbath. Yeah, well, Bill, you know what? Are we going to run out of time? Let me comment on that quickly. 
Without a doubt, we want to do everything we can to minimize what others have to do on Sabbath. But when it comes to coming to church, that is rather important. And we want to try all we can to prearrange. Friends, we'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return in a moment. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. For thousands of years, man has worshiped God on the seventh day of the week. Now, each week, millions of people worship on the first day. What happened? Why did God create a day of rest? Does it really matter what day we worship? Who is behind this great shift? Discover the truth behind God's law and how it was changed. Visit SabbathTruth.com. Visit AFBookstore.com. Amazing Facts offers some of the best Christian resources for all ages. We hope our products will enrich your life and your walk with the Lord. What does Bible prophecy reveal about the world's two largest religions? Explore the ancient conflict in Islam, Christianity, and Prophecy, a compelling three-part series with Pastor Doug Batchelor. Get yours today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, kingdoms in time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit kingdomsintime.com. Every Bible question you have answered moves you one step closer to the fullness of God's will for your life. So what are you waiting for? Get the answers you need for a fuller, richer, more confident life. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's join Pastor Jean Ross for more Bible Answers Live. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Yes, this is Bible Answers Live. And if you have a Bible-related question, we'd love to hear from you this evening. The number to call is 800-463-7297. I want to greet those who are joining us on Facebook as well. As you can see, I'm the one here alone this evening. Pastor Doug is actually out of town tonight. But we're ready to take your Bible questions. If you have a Bible question, the number again is 800-463-7297. I'll be giving you another number later on in the program. That is our resource phone line. We have a number of resources that we'd also make available to you. So with your Bible question, the number to call 800-463-7297. Our next caller is uh, Merle listening from Arkansas. 
Merrill, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you. My question is regarding homosexuality so that we may uh, give direction by the Word of God. All right, so there are quite a few verses in the Bible that deal with this, but probably one of the clearest that we have is 1 Corinthians, if you're writing this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It's pretty clear. I'm going to read this for everyone. Again, this is what the Bible says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Then in verse 11 it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. So here the Bible makes it clear that homosexuality is not part of God's original plan. It is a sin, according to the Bible. The good news, though, is that God does forgive, and if there is genuine repentance and someone turns from sin, of course God is willing to forgive, and he does forgive. And I think that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Does that help? 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you can read all the way from verse 9 through to verse 11. Verse 9 through verse 11. Yes, thank you, Pastor Ross. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for calling. Our next caller that we have is listening in Charlotte, North Carolina. I believe it's uh, Lolia. Hi, and your question this evening. Uh, yeah, my question is from Luke 16. Okay. Um, the parable of the unjust steward. Yes. Why, why were the actions of the unjust steward commended? Okay. Dishonest? Right. Yeah, what did you mean by make friends for yourself, my unrighteous mammon? when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting home. Yes. Well, let me give you a little bit of the context of the parable here. You find in Luke chapter 16, it actually starts in verse 1 and goes all the way through to verse 13. And like many of the parables that Jesus told, there is a deeper lesson that is being emphasized in the parable. In the story, there is a landowner or a master who has a steward, and the steward has not been very faithful with the funds that... Uh, his master had given to him to oversee and manage. And so he realizes he's going to be caught out and he could very well lose his job. So he actually goes to the people that owe money to his master and he says to them, listen, what do you owe? Well, I owe so much. He says, well, we'll give you less. Instead of 100 measures of oil, go ahead and why don't you just pay for you know a smaller amount, pay for 50 or whatever it might be. He goes to all of the different debtors of his master and he works out a deal knowing that he's probably going to lose his job and at least then he has a place that he can go. He has a friend. He's made a friend with someone. Now Jesus uses that, not that in any way the Bible is condoning that we should do that kind of thing, but the principle is that this man thought ahead. He thought ahead and he planned accordingly. Now if that's what the wicked would do, how much more should the righteous think ahead and plan? We know that there is a day of judgment that is coming. And our eternal destiny, our eternal life is at stake. Shouldn't we also be diligent then to make friends with our Savior Jesus? Shouldn't we put the time in? Shouldn't we seek forgiveness and seek His grace? Uh, if the wicked prepare for the future, 
how much more should the righteous prepare for an eternal future? That is the lesson that Jesus is trying to emphasize using this story, this parable. Okay, thank you. I got you. Thank you so much. All right, absolutely. Good question. Next caller that we have is Chris, and he's listening in Florida. Chris, welcome to the program. You're on Bible Answers Live. Yes, this is Chris. Hi, Chris. And your question today? Hi, yes. Uh, I have a question about uh, our bodies, physical bodies, when we die. Yes. We all know what uh, Thessalonians, what Paul what Paul says in Thessalonians, uh, one of us writers remember that uh, when we die, we are at rest. Yes. Awaiting for uh, um, resurrection and judgment. Correct. But, but in Philippians, uh, I don't remember whether it is two or four, Paul says uh, that he would rather die and be with Christ. So... What do you think? What does he mean by that? Okay. Well, Paul also makes it clear that flesh and blood cannot inherit eternal life. He also says in Corinthians that these mortal bodies must put on immortality, and that occurs when Jesus comes the second time. When a person dies, their next conscious thought is the second coming of Christ, if they're a believer. Their next conscious thought is the presence of God. Jesus is right there in front of them. He's seated on the cloud. They are resurrected. They are being caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Uh, Now, hundreds of years could have passed, or 10, 15, whatever, could have passed between their death and their resurrection, but they're not aware of time. You know, when a person dies, the Bible says his thoughts perish. He's unaware that time has gone by. So when Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, He's just talking about when we die, our next conscious thought is we are present with the Lord. It's the second coming. And we are resurrected not with these mortal bodies, but with the immortal bodies, the bodies that will last throughout all eternity. Yes, but my second sub-question is how Paul could be so sure that he will be in presence of Jesus when he dies? Well, you know, Paul had the assurance of salvation, which we can have as well. You know, the Bible says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul, in uh, near the end of his life, said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the race. Therefore, there is laid up for me, not only for me, but all of those that love God, a crown of righteousness. So Paul was confident that Jesus is his Lord, his Savior. He was looking forward to that resurrection morning when he would be in the presence of God. Now, of course, that occurs. Paul will be in the presence of God at the resurrection morning with all the righteous who are resurrected when Jesus comes the second time. And that is the hope of the Christian. Right. Okay, thank you, Pastor Ross. That answers my questions. Thank you very much. All right, well, thanks for calling. We do have a study guide, Chris, that we'll be happy to send you or anyone wanting to know more about this. It's simply called, Are the Dead Really Dead? It's an amazing facts study guide. To receive that, the number to call is 800-835-6747. You can just ask for the study guide called, Are the Dead Really Dead? Amazing Facts offers some of the best Christian resources for all ages. We hope our products will enrich your life and your walk with the Lord. Death, a subject everyone thinks about, but no one enjoys talking about. Is there life after death? The Afterlife Mystery is a brand new sharing magazine that answers all your questions. 
Get yours today by calling 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Our next caller is James, and he's listening from Florida. James, welcome to the program. Hi, Pastor John. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Um, I was calling up to get some advice on the proper, if there is considered a proper way when doing communion. Um, I had recently visited a new church, and it just happened to have been doing communion that day. And I'm used to communion where you have the unleavened cracker, and then you have your little cup of grape juice. You do the cracker, and then you take the grape juice, and, you know, all that stuff. And um, the way that this church had done it was they had, like, fresh bread that people would tear off a fragment and then dip it in the grape juice and just eat a grape juice-soaked piece of bread. And I'm not entirely sure if that is considered the biblical way to do it. For some reason, all I could think of was just thinking about the passage where Jesus was calling out Judas, saying the man that dips his hand with the bread is the one that was going to betray him. So I want to know what your thoughts were on that. Okay, good question. First of all, if you... I'll give you a passage here in just a minute in 1 Corinthians 11. But when it comes to communion, at least the type of bread that's used, the communion service is a replacement for the Passover service of the Old Testament. And in the Passover service, it was unleavened bread that was used. In the Bible, leaven sometimes represents, at least in the Passover context, represented sin. And of course, Christ's sacrifice, he was sinless. Even though he bore our sins, it was not for any sin that he had committed. So you will find that in most churches that practice communion, at least according to the Bible, they will use unleavened bread, meaning a bread that does not have yeast in it. So usually it's a flat type of bread. Now, with reference to the order of eating the bread and drinking the grape juice, again, it is unfermented wine, meaning it's grape juice. It doesn't have yeast. Uh, probably one of the clearest uh, admonitions that we find is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. And I'll read this, James, for you and those who are listening. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here you find the bread being broken, and people eat the bread. Then in verse 25, In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So from this passage, it appears to be the eating of the bread first and then the drinking of the grape juice second. Not necessarily a dipping into the grape juice. I know in our church, we have the bread separate from the grape juice. Um, and we right. follow the same order that we find here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Okay. Yeah, that's... That was kind of what I was thinking along those lines, absolutely. And I'm definitely going to look up that verse in 1 Corinthians and uh, study on that, too. I appreciate that. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Thanks for your call, James. We appreciate it. Uh, next caller that we have is Shamia. Shamia, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi, welcome. Thanks for calling. Okay. Um, I would like to know, like, yeah, my name is Shamia. Um, you know, Samaya, you might have to turn your radio down. I can hear an echo there in the background. Oh, sorry. That um, would be helpful, make it easier. Okay. And your 
your question this evening? I have a question because I just met an atheist friend. Okay. I have an atheist friend. I shared a gospel on my um, uh, Snapchat, just like, and um, I like inspiring others. I um, I don't want to step down my role in leading people, you know, the right way through like inspirational, uh, like your inspiration. Okay. On the um, and your facts. You're kind of wondering a little bit about how do you share with an atheist about Jesus? Is that the question? Yes. Well, good question. You know, of course, we bump into atheists, especially if we're studying at a secular university. We might find folks who claim to be atheists. You know, I think one of the best ways that we can witness to an atheist, first and foremost, is live the teachings of Jesus. Uh, it's one thing to claim to be a Christian if we're not living the teachings of Christ. But if we're living a consistent Christian life, uh, following the teachings of Jesus, first and foremost with ourselves, uh, then we can speak from a personal experience of Jesus. We could explain to someone that Jesus is more than just a theoretical um, agreement with a set of beliefs, but he is a real person. He loves us. Jesus died to save us. Jesus gives peace. Jesus gives hope and strength. The most effective witness whether you're working with an atheist or somebody else, is your personal testimony. Somebody might argue your theology, but if you're sharing your own experience of what Jesus has done for you, that's very hard for somebody to argue against. So I think that's where it starts. Sharing your own experience, your own testimony of what Jesus has done for you, and then as an interest awakens to learn more about the Bible, then what I would do is I'd direct their attention to some of the prophecies in the Bible that help to prove the Bible as true. And when people can see that these prophecies in the Bible did come true, they were fulfilled, then usually they're willing to hear more about what the Bible has to say. So, first of all, you want to live the teachings of Jesus. Secondly, you want to be willing to share a testimony of what Jesus means to you. And then as interest grows, you can direct them to some of the prophetic passages of the Bible to build credibility in the scriptures. Does that help? Okay. Uh, yes. Um, but like, I have a question like, what if she says like she doesn't care? What if she doesn't care? Well, again, you know, you can't force someone. If they don't want to hear, you're not going to be able to force them to hear. But you can at least be the best witness that you can. And look for those opportunities, you know, when things open up. If you can share a word of encouragement, if you can give someone a little bit of the hope that you have in Jesus, you pray for the person, and then allow the Holy Spirit to do its work. Uh, work with the Spirit to help in guiding that situation. We want to thank you for your call, Shamia. Our next caller that we have is uh, listening from Long Island. It's um, Amveris, I think the name is, Long Island, New York. Ambers, are Hi. you there? Yes, I'm sorry. I was listening. Hey, no problem. You're on the air. Uh, yes. How are you? Good. Yes. Very good. Thank you. So, so, yes, my question comes from Matthew 16, verse 19. Okay. So, um, I don't know. You want to read it? Or you yeah, can... let me read it for you. It says, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, for those who might be driving. Yes. Jesus speaking, he's speaking to the disciples, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And your okay, question so is, question you're wondering is, what this means, right? Yes, but also um, I hear someone using this verse saying that the church, if 
someone is like removed from the membership of, of the church, is actually being removed from the books of heaven since this verse is giving like authority to the church. So what do you think about that? Okay, well, the authority that Jesus gives to the church, and in a special sense to his mm. disciples here, was the authority to preach the gospel. In preaching the gospel, mm. they were opening the kingdom of heaven to those who would receive it. In preaching the gospel, mm -hmm. they were closing heaven to those who rejected it. So the key okay. is the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is where the disciples were to fulfill their mission in either opening heaven or closing heaven, depending upon whether a person received the gospel or rejected the gospel. Um, our eternal salvation is dependent upon our choice. It's not a decision that somebody else can make for us. It's not a decision that the church can make on our behalf. We have to personally choose Jesus. Now, having said that, there are times in a church where perhaps a member needs to be placed on some type of disciplinary measure. Or maybe there's a believer in the church who is openly living in sin. And the church needs mm -hmm. to deal with that situation. There, there are some times where someone's membership might have to be removed from the church records. That's not removing their name from heaven. It's quite possible, though, that if the church has to remove their name from the church books, perhaps they've already rebelled against God to the point where their name is already removed from heaven. But it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that they lost forever. Uh, I know of many instances where people, they had their names removed from the church records, but as time went on, they came to repentance, they acknowledged their sin, they confessed to God, and they were reunited with the church. So, um, yeah, there's many instances uh, and experiences where people have had there. So this is not an arbitrary decision that the church makes as to who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. Um, each individual needs to make that mm, decision okay. for themselves. Okay. Okay. So if, if, if a member, let's say, uh, they don't have time to re-baptize and they've been, they were removed from church, that means they can be still being saved, right? Oh, absolutely. Matter of fact, the correct manner of dealing with a member that is um, apostatized, meaning they're not following the teachings of Jesus or the Bible, you deal with them, and it's sometimes you need to remove them from membership, but you do so with the hope that through that they will realize the error of their ways and come to a point of repentance. That's the ultimate goal, to bring them to a point of repentance and then that they would be reunited. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Appreciate right, your call. Thank you. thank you for your time. Absolutely. You. Our next caller that we have is Christopher, and I believe listening from uh, Trinidad. Christopher, welcome to the program. Hi. Good, day. Good night. Sorry. Yes. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks. And your question um, tonight. My question is, what is the importance of the correct understanding of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ? All right. First of all, I think let's deal with the last part of your question first, talking about the divinity of Jesus. I think it's a, an important biblical teaching that we need to recognize that Jesus was indeed God. Uh, John chapter 1 talks about, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's clearly talking about Jesus. So it's very clear yeah. from the Bible that Jesus is one with the Father. He does share the character qualities of being divine. He is God. 
And then also the Holy Spirit, we find in the New Testament, also sharing those same qualities of divinity. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all divine. Does that help, Christopher? Yeah. Now, yeah. now the question you had is how important is it for us to understand that? Yeah, how important okay. is the correct understanding of these things? Of the Trinity. Well, you know, I think, first of, first of all, you know, God reveals truth to us, and depending upon how we respond to that truth uh, is important. We might not at first have a full or correct understanding of the Godhead, and I, I don't think anyone has a complete understanding of who God is. And we're talking about God, the creator of the universe. But what has been revealed to us in the Bible, we ought to seek that out and then accept that as revealed in the Bible. We might not be able to explain it or understand it fully. I mean, how can we try and comprehend the fact that God has no beginning? From a human perspective, that's very hard to try and wrap our mind around that God has always been. He has no beginning. Because we live in a world that is yeah. got beginnings and endings. But this is something that the Bible says. And so because it says it in the Bible, we accept it. We believe it. We take it as, as the Bible reads. And I think that's the most important when we talk about this subject is recognizing there are areas that we do not understand. But also then accepting those clear things that are expressed in Scripture. And, you know, uh, Christopher, we do have a book that we'd be happy to um, send you. Matter of fact, you could probably read it for free online at the Amazing Facts website. The book is called The Trinity, Is It Biblical? Again, it's called The Trinity, Is It Biblical? Or you can call and ask for the book. The number is 800-835-6747. And anyone who's listening, you can call and ask for the book, Is the Trinity Biblical? And we'll be happy to send that to you. Our next caller is Thomas, listening in Toronto, Canada. Thomas, welcome to the program. Yes, how are you doing? Doing well. And your question this evening? Um, yes, this is my question. Um, in the Bible, it talks about that um, the divine punishment was that we return to dust, right? Yes. And I, under I understand that um, like Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in immortal soul, neither do I. Okay. So we so we do indeed return to dust, and this is this is my question because I, when I called in, I said, "Is Jesus oxygen?" And this is something that I came to understand when you look at the periodic table. Carbon is has six electrons, six protons, and six neutrons, and carbon is the basis of all life. Basically, you can call carbon dust, and oxygen has eight electrons, eight protons, and eight neutrons. Right? Okay. When you add up Jesus' name in Greek, and the New Testament was written in Greek, it adds up to 888, and that's the same as oxygen. Okay. And So are you saying Jesus is oxygen or just that he's like oxygen? Jesus would be that living tree that produces the spiritual oxygen for us to live eternally. Okay. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, let me say something about that. It is remarkable. You have the creation story. It says God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, out of the clay. So you have, you know, the physical matter. Then it says, and God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. Now, we know oxygen is essential for human life. Um, and yet with the life that Jesus gave Adam, this breath of life, it was something more than just oxygen, although oxygen is needed. But it's that spark of life. You can have a dead person and you can pump as much oxygen in them as you like. It's not necessarily going to bring them back to life unless there is that narrow window of opportunity. 
in some ways you can think of uh, the life-giving power as oxygen, but God is, of course, so much more than oxygen. But it is an interesting uh, connection there to think of God. We, we need oxygen every day to breathe, so we need Jesus every day spiritually to breathe. And just as oxygen brings life and strength, so Jesus brings life and strength to those who believe in him. Well, I want to thank you for your call, Thomas. I'm looking at the clock, friends, and it doesn't look like we have time to take another call. And if you're still waiting, we want to thank you for your patience. Uh, be sure to call us next week, and we'll be able to take more of your Bible answers. But until then, I'd like to remind you of some of the great resources that are available at the Amazing Facts website. If you haven't visited the website lately, I'd encourage you to take a look at it. It's just recently being designed, redesigned. It's got a lot of great resources, especially for those who like to study deep in what the Bible teaches. Just go to amazingfacts.org and you'll be able to get a lot more information there at our website. And while you're there, you can click on some of the earlier Bible Answer Live programs and listen. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts, a faith-based ministry located in Sacramento, California. Want to know God's plan for our world and solutions for your life's challenges? Beautifully redesigned, Amazing Facts 27 Bible Study Guides provide encouraging Bible-based answers to questions on healthier relationships, when Jesus will return, and much more. Prefer to watch while you read? Our brand new Prophecy Encounters DVD series makes the perfect companion set. Order your study guides and DVDs today by visiting afbookstore.com or by calling 800-538-7275. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change to see the future? You must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history. Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit kingdomsintime.com. Journey back through time to the center of the universe. Discover how a perfect angel transformed into Satan, the arch-villain. The birth of evil, a rebellion in heaven, a mutiny that moved to earth. Behold the creation of a beautiful new planet and the first humans. Witness the temptation in Eden. Discover God's amazing plan to save his children. This is a story that involves every life on earth every life the cosmic conflict if god is good if god is all-powerful if god is love then what went wrong if you'd like to enhance your study of god's word 
visit our website at www.amazingfacts.org and sign up for our free Bible study course. And make sure to check out our online bookstore at afbookstore.com, which offers thousands of inspiring books, DVDs, and more to help you get the most out of God's Word. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org.